Hello, everyone. Thank you all so much for coming tonight. My name is Ashley Gorman, and I am on the leadership team for the Society for Women in Scholarship. Um, and for the type A people in the room who are wondering, what are we doing tonight? Give me the big picture. I need the bullet-pointed list. I'm going to tell you where we're going. So I'm going to be giving you the big picture introduction of this entire lecture series, if you're not familiar with it. Um, what is it about? Why this title? What's going on? Um, and then after me, Dr. Ken Keithley, the director of the Center for Faith and Culture here at Southeastern, will give you details about this particular installment of the series, um, the topic and the speakers. Then we'll hear from the speakers themselves. Each will speak for about 25 to 30 minutes, and then we'll have a Q&A. So that's where we're going. So let's jump into an introduction to the series. On your little handout, you'll see evangelical voices in the academy. We chose each of those words on purpose. First, the academy. As we all know, the academy, academia, scholarship, whatever you want to call it, call it is its big own world, right? But within academia, there is another word you'll see, evangelicals. Evangelicals in academia are actually a minority, even though we don't tend to think that, right, because we're around each other all the time. Um, so we're, we seek to give a voice to evangelicals in academia, but not just a voice, lots of voices. Various, sorry, <laughs> who can speak to us from their unique perspectives, their fields of study, um, and their diverse experiences. That means that in our lecture series and events as a society, we seek to work in tandem with our brothers in the academy um, and also provide opportunities to put what partnership looks like on display. Um, we desire to edify the entire student body, not just women, and elevate all sorts of voices, internal voices from our own institution, external voices from other seminaries nearby, and even international voices, as you'll hear tonight uh, from Dr. Bird. Voices of men, voices of women, and voices of all different cultures and ethnicities within evangelicalism. Our first installment, you might remember hearing, uh, was from Dr. Esther Meek, who came and spoke to us about covenant epistemology, and she knocked it out of the park. Tonight, in our second installment of the series, we will hear from our own Dr. Bruce Ashford, who's the provost at Southeastern, as a lot of you know, and also from Dr. Michael Bird, who hails all the way from Australia. We chose these two voices for a particular reason. Both Dr. Ashford and Dr. Bird were two of the society's earliest advocates, Ashford being an internal support for us and Dr. Bird being an external source of support at another school who wanted to learn about how we were developing women with academic and theological gifting and what it would look like to see more things like the society sprout up in other institutions. So these two, who you will be introduced to properly in just one moment, are not only brilliant in their respective fields, but people who have truly advocated and supported us in so many ways. So we are incredibly excited to host them tonight. I'd also like to thank Kingdom Diversity and the Center for Faith and Culture especially in their partnership and generous support for this lecture series. We would not have been able to pull this off without them, and they deserve much honor for their efforts. Next, Dr. Ken Keithley, the director for Center for Faith and Culture, will properly introduce you to our topic and our speakers. But first, join me in a word of prayer for tonight. Father, you created the world and everything in it, and we, can, we commit tonight to you because we're seeking to learn what it means to engage with the world and everything in it. 
um, and we want to take our cue from you um, and your word, um, and we want to glorify your son in the process. So we pray your spirit would be here um, to encourage our hearts, to teach us your ways, and ultimately to take care of um, the image bearers and the world around us in a way that honors you. Um, and values the Great Commission. And so we lift these requests up to you, and um, we're excited to learn from you tonight. Amen. Good evening, everyone. Are we in a day in which Christians should step back from the larger political and cultural communities? Uh, Is this a time that, for the sake of the formation of a more robust Christian witness, we should focus primarily on developing our own subculture. These are the kinds of questions that have been raised uh, by Rod Dreher in his book, The Benedict Option. Uh, We, as as you heard Ashley say, the Evangelical Voices in the Academy Lecture Series uh, is excited to announce that Dr. Michael uh, Bird of Ridley College in Melbourne and Dr. Bruce Ashford of our own Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary will present these lectures in response to Rod Dreher's book and the advocation, uh, his advocacy of the Benedict Option. Dr. Bird is an Anglican priest, a lecturer in theology, and has written and edited over 30 books in the fields of the Septuagint, the Historical Jesus, the Gospels, St. Paul, Biblical Theology, and Systematic Theology. Dr. Ashford is the Provost and Professor of Theology and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of multiple books on the intersection of theology and culture and has appeared on several nationally syndicated news programs and his writing has been featured in many national news outlets. He also serves as an elder at the Summit Church in Raleigh-Durham. Dr. Bird will present the Thessalonian uh, strategy, an Antipodian alternative to the Benedict Option, and then Dr. Ashford will present an Abrahamic alternative to the Benedict Option, and as Ashley said, uh, these lectures will then be followed by a facilitated discussions with, uh, of these two reflective responses. So, without any further ado, uh, would you join me in welcoming Dr. Michael Bird? Well, good day from Australia. Um, yeah, my name's uh, Dr. Well, Mike Bird, they call me back in Australia, and I am uh, I'm thrilled to be here and hang out. I'm having a lovely time in North Carolina. It's important for me to be here. I've actually written a novel set in North Carolina, and this is, my, this is my first chance to actually visit here. So when I wrote the novel, I was just looking at places like on Google Maps, thinking, oh, yeah, he can drive past that church. Uh, now... <laughs> Now I actually get to figure out there's actually a church there where I um, where I wrote where I, where I wrote about. So I'm I'm very happy and I've been treated so wonderfully and uh, it's great to be here uh, supporting the ministry of the society and encouraging uh, women in thought leadership, which we desperately need in uh, in America in evangelicalism and indeed throughout the world wherever the name of Christ is revered. So I'm going to talk a bit about the, the Benedict Option and my own sort of um, Antipodean strategy called the Thessalonian strategy. But l- let me just bring you up to speed on certain things. Uh, in case you uh, have not noticed, countries like America, Australia, Canada and Europe are becoming increasingly post-Christian. 
and we're also seeing uh, ever-increasingly militant expressions of secularism. So we have to think about how we as Christians are going to respond and how we are going to engage with our wider society. Now there are a number of options which we have to choose from, a number of ways we could go about this. First of all, you could say that there is the uh, religious right option, which aspires to take America back by electing Christian politicians to office, getting conservative judges on the Supreme Court, who can then repeal things like abortion, gay marriage, and bring back prayer in schools. Now behind this is a certain nostalgia for the good old days of Christian America, and we're waiting for something like Reagan 2.0, to suddenly be revealed in our midst. And I'll never forget one of the first times I was in America, I saw someone on TV saying the goal of his ministry was to get all of America converted, baptized and enrolled to vote. So the idea, if we can do that on a a mass level, we can take this nation back. And it would seem, uh, when when people thought all hope for that is gone, the election of President Donald Trump, uh, who was not necessarily the automatic evangelical uh, choice, uh, nonetheless has promised to make Christianity very prominent in America again. And I think he's recently promised that he will say Merry Christmas, uh, not just Happy Holidays or Festivus or anything like that. Um, Nonetheless, the fact of the matter is the demographics in your country and my country are changing. The social temperament of the US is becoming allergic to a thin veneer of cultural Christianity being foisted upon it. And to be honest, I do not think the religious right option is going to work in the long term. A nominally Christian country might be a safe place for believers and have a pious pretentiousness about it, but the religion tends to be phony, shallow and hypocritical. I'm not interested in a political theocracy so we can have cheap discipleship, even if it's on a mass scale. Uh, Even worse, it seems the religious right has had to swear allegiance and fealty to certain characters who do not best represent it. And I think Russell Moore put it very well when he said, the religious right has become the people the religious right warned us about. I keep getting Russell Moore and Roy Moore mixed up. I've got to make sure I don't do that. <laughs> if I keep complaining about that guy in Alabama, Russell Moore, you know, I'm, I'm confused. Okay, a second, a second option was that maybe Christians need to see themselves as living in exile. Now we can use the metaphor of exile from you know, the Psalms, you know, and you know, by the rivers of Babylon we sat down, we can sing that wonderful Boney M song. Uh, and this obviously is driven uh, clearly from First Peter chapter 1, chapter 2. And the metaphor of the church in exile has been adopted by a wide number of uh, Christian cultural commentators, Catholic, liberal, Protestant, mainline, the uh, emergent, progressive, they've all thought of the church as living in a state of exile. Uh, the only thing that holds these uh, views together though is that the, ju- the church is identified as living in a decidedly post-Christian 
landscape of which the metaphor of exile is meant to be a salient descriptor. But even the metaphor of uh, exile may not be completely correct. John Goldingay, a British scholar who teaches at Fuller Seminary, uh, he describes the state of American Christianity as being more like the days of Josiah, where the law has been forgotten and there are only a remnant who are discovering it and wanting to obey it. So maybe the metaphor of uh, exile may not be the best way to ascribe it. A third option uh, is for the church to operate in a mode of existence known as faithful presence. This derives from the American sociologist James Davidson Hunter who argues that the Christian left and Christian right are both wrong to identify the essence of culture with values and to employ the politics of resentment to try win over the masses uh, to, uh, to, to basically get their own idea of culture and religion uh, validated. Uh, instead of trying to change the culture, let alone the world, Hunter advocates a model he calls faithful presence. And that is where individuals and institutions cooperate in order to make disciples and serve the common good. He says a theology of faithful presence means a recognition that the vocation of the church is to bear witness to and be the embodiment of the kingdom of God. In Hunter's vision, the church is indeed a community of resistance, but it engages in a constructive subversion of all frameworks of social life that are incompatible with the shalom, with the peace for which we were made and called. Uh, Davidson thinks the church can affirm the fixtures of human life, that evidence common grace that we all enjoy, while also offering an antithetical assessment of the metaphysical, epistemological and ethical assumptions that undergird modern institutions and their excuse me, ideologies. Central to Hunter's thesis is that Christian energies are best spent not in political conquest, using institutions and next and networks to, to achieve something, but he calls instead on Christians to be silent for a season, to abstain from political activism, seeking to enact faith in different ways rather than clamouring for changes in public policy. I mean, basically that is to say you have lost the culture war, so retreat from politics and just get on with being good sermon on the mount people. Uh, be known what you're for rather than what you're against. That sounds good, but I, I wonder where is the angry prophet? Where is the Martin Luther King in, um, in, uh, in, in, in James Davidson Hunter's scheme? It's one thing from trying to, to it's one thing to desist from trying to stack the deck in your favour, uh, but it's it's another thing to remain silent in the face of evil. Um, and I also worry, on the one hand, if the religious right and its public activism disappears, I actually worry that something far worse might replace it. Something like the, the alt-right and some of the things that it brings. That brings us to the fourth option, the Benedict option. This view is largely associated with the conservative journalist Rod Dreher, who, taking his cue from philosopher Alistair McIntyre, argues we are approaching a new dark age which requires new forms of local community to sustain its moral and intellectual life. 
We should pursue a form of community life modelled upon that of Saint Benedict, who established monasteries of beacons of light and hope during the Dark Ages. So Dreher advocates a partial withdrawal from the world into Christian villages with their own culture, where transformation is truly possible in a community with its own vibrant counterculture. Since Christianity is no longer coextensive with culture, Christians need not fight in the culture war, but create their own culture, even while somehow still inhabiting a place within American culture. The proposal is not about a literal and complete withdrawal into Christian communes in some wilderness, but about establishing monasteries, metaphorical and real, inside the secular metropolises. The Benedict option is very attractive to those who want to live out fulsomely the Christian tradition in devoted and intentional communities, people who no longer resonate with the moral fragmentation and the hyper-individualism which is all around them. And I think the Benedict option is right to stress the local over the political, the spiritual over the cultural. I mean, it does not require, require ceasing all political engagement. Dreher is quite clear we should be in, involved particularly in local politics. We, we must refrain from investing the totality of our hopes in politics. And he's, he wants us to look to our own traditions for our identity and resources for how to be a human being and how to be a community. At the end of the day, though, this really does look like circling the wagons, but doing it with monks rather than with cowboys. The temptation, then, is for the church to become retreatist rather than redemptive, for its praxis to become monastic but without the missional dimension, or it can become introspective rather than effusive to the outside world. Or in the words of um, Rusty Reno, the Benedict option is Breitbart with incense. So those are the options we've seen. You've got the religious right option, you know, focus on the metaphor of the church in exile, faithful present, and the Benedict option. Now, I have to say, I don't think certainly faithful presence and the Benedict option are going to work in my home country of Australia because those two options assume a somewhat neutral or at least benign public square, where Christian faith remains a plausible, albeit minority, viewpoint. But what if the culture is ignorant, suspicious, fearful, adverse, allergic or even hostile to Christianity, including its moral vision and socio-political entity? It's true in Australia, and I think it's becoming true here. We are no longer the moral majority. In the eyes of the elites and the media, we are the immoral minority. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. In Australia, we've recently had some debates about same-sex marriage, and we have seen a very virulent campaign, sorry, a very... Um, vitriolic campaign labelled against churches. Many churches have been vandalised. Christian conferences have been attacked by protesters with people chanting things like crucify Christians. Uh, this is from a protest that was in Australia some time ago. 
Uh, this is a church that is just down the road from where me and my family live. Uh, this isn't in Iraq. This is not Mosul. This is in Melbourne, Australia, where there are people out there who are chanting crucify Christians, graffiti in churches along those lines. To sum up um, what it's like in Australia, a friend of mine, Simon Smart, put it this way. Many Australians have, he says, a thin veneer of resentment towards Christianity on top of a sea of apathy. Whatever monasteries we build, metaphorical or real, there are some people who are intending to tear them down. The very existence of Christians is regarded as a hate crime because we are a threat to the pantheon of, the, of progressive political beliefs. We are, in their minds, enemies of the state. We commit the crime of misanthropy. By failing to embrace the values of the progressive left, we are haters of the human race. In that context, I submit to you, the Benedict option is not enough. Now, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but it's going to be very similar for you here in the United States very soon, and I can prove that. The United States Commission on Civil Rights produced a document called Coexistence, where it, it, it attempted to discuss uh, religious freedom with discrimination against minorities. And the conclusion of the commission was that religious freedom is nothing more than a license to discriminate against others. Therefore, religious freedom must be restricted and combined at every point imaginable. Religious freedom is something that should be only begrudgingly tolerated. This was a report produced by one of your own agencies. Now, I'm not an expert in the history of American law, but it was one of the most concerted attacks on the First Amendment that I could possibly imagine. The philosophy that is generating this is something that is called civic totalism. I want you to remember that phrase, civic totalism. Civic totalism uh, is a philosophy described, not advocated, described by sociologist Stephen Macedo. Uh, he says this is, this is a view where the state is invested with all power and seeks to regulate as much of public and private life as possible. In civic totalism, the state prosecutes a convergence of public and private values requiring government to be empowered with the ability to turn people's deepest convictions, including their religious beliefs, in directions that are congruent with the ways of a progressive state. Consequently, religion too, within civic totalism, is regarded as dangerous, since religion ascribes notions of ultimacy to something other than the state and the state's vision of the public good. Religion creates a competing social vision and an alternative morality which divides the loyalty of citizens away from the state's ambitions. The German philosopher and social theorist Jürgen Habermas contends that the consciousness of the faithful must be modernized 
and forced to acquiesce to the individualistic and egalitarian nature of the laws of the secular community. It is a civic totalizing conviction as it applies to religion that is leading contemporary political philosophers and sociologists to dare imagine the prospect of the state forcibly bringing religions into alignment with progressive ideologies. According to two Australian sociologists, Carolyn Evans and Beth Gaze, they say, there is increasingly powerful movement to subject, subject religions to the full scope of discrimination laws, with some scholars now suggesting that even core religious practices, such as the ordination of clergy, can be regulated in the name of equality. Don't write this out as a mere academic thought bubble from Australia. It was the same sort of thinking that led Secretary Hillary Clinton to say in the context of a speech about women's rights that laws have to be backed up with resources and political will and deep-seated cultural codes, religious beliefs and structural biases have to be changed. Chilling words indeed. So I think the Benedict option fails because you will not be safe in your monasteries which leads to a bit of a question what do we do I've come up with my own option my own uh, idea it's called the Thessalonian strategy patent pending um, when Paul arrived in Thessalonica he and his co-workers had a reputation of turning the world upside down that is to say they were challenging the idolatries, the injustice, the pretentiousness of imperial ideology. Paul dared to say that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Paul saw himself as a royal ambassador, announcing that Israel's God had acted through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth to bring forgiveness and peace to all people. And everyone had been summoned to believe and obey the royal proclamation about Jesus. The Thessalonian strategy is not a cultural war for the old Christendom, but more like the campaign to earn the freedom to practice and promote one's faith, both in private and in the public square. It means freedom for everyone, for Methodists, Muslims, Mormons, Sikhs and Buddhists alike. It's about fighting for a pluralism where we can love our neighbours by allowing our neighbours to be other than us. We turn the world upside down by constituting ourselves as an alternative community of freedom and love. We turn the world upside down by professing and practicing allegiance to Jesus rather than to democratic Caesars and Republican Tsars. We turn the world upside down by exposing the menacing ethos of political progressives who treat people of faith like enemies of the state. We turn the world upside down by becoming a public nuisance, defending the voiceless and the vulnerable, shining a spotlight on the things the cultural elites don't want people to see. I believe such a strategy is necessary given environments where political progressives believe it is necessary to curtail religious liberty to achieve their own particular social vision, as if religion is the one thing that is holding back a truly inclusive and tolerant society. So to avoid being driven out of education and charitable work, 
to prevent our voices from being muted, to stop our sermons from being subpoenaed, we will have to wage a counterinsurgency conflict of one sort, but one armed with the weapons of peace and pluralism. We have to be willing to engage in a strategy that exposes the bullying of political progressives, discloses their hypocrisy, reveals their propensity for violence, and shines a light on the predatory nature of the policies. And indeed, we can do the same thing with the political right, those who want to co-opt Christianity for their own particular political agendas. We have to champion and we have to exemplify tolerance, love and be the champions of that. And that can be no empty claim. We have to point out that some features of the new tolerance looks a bit like many of the old tyrannies. In fighting a perceived monster, progressives risk becoming something far worse. When we hold up a mirror to them, we can point out they do not look like Martin Luther King. They more, look more like a hipster version of Robespierre. Now, along the way, there will be several strategies I suggest we uh, adopt. Uh, one, I think we have to remember that love is our key weapon. When they curse you, bless them back. Yes, even on social media. We are going to have to develop co-belligerence with other faith communities, both within Christianity and external to it. I, I once met a high school principal who said he thanks God for Muslims, as of a Christian school, because he said if it was up to certain political parties in Australia, they would close down every Christian school. But they can't do that unless they're willing to do the same thing to Muslim schools, and they can't do that because that would make them Islamophobic and they don't do that. So he said, Muslims are our bodyguards protecting us from the political left. There are opportunities for co-belligerence within interfaith relations. The other thing is, if you want to know what it's like to be marginalised, what it's like for, to be ignored, to be downtrampled, then we need to look to leadership from many ethnic minorities. Uh, they know what it's like to be on the margins of culture. And we may have to look to leadership from those people. Uh, certainly in Australia, that's something I've been urging. Um, you know, there are some great Christian men I know, but white men wearing blue ties may not be the future of our leadership. I think we need to look to women, we need to look to ethnic minorities, various groups who know what it's like to be a minority. Uh, white heterosexual males like me do not know what it's like to be a minority. Uh, things are slightly stacked in my favour. So we may not be the best ones to provide leadership for the future. And we may need to find ways of doing creative resistance. Um, I'll be honest with you, I don't have any problem with baking a cake for someone who's gay or Muslim or even Baptist. But if I, but if I, if I, you know, I, I, if an LGBT activist came to my business and I was said that you're going to bake me a cake, and if you don't bake me a cake, I'm going to destroy you, your business, your your livelihood, and your home. I'm going to I'm going to completely destroy you. If if if, if an activist came to you know my business and did that, I would bake them a cake, and it would be the best cake they ever made. But I would then add a little note in the cake and saying thank you very much for your business with the money I made from this transaction, I donated it to Donald Trump. 
again, if it was just a gay couple who wanted a cake, I'd be happy to make it because you're going to do commerce. That's, that's, my, that's my personal view. Other, others' people's conscience is different, I know, but that's what I would do. But if someone's out to get you, you're going to have to be more creative in your resistance. Okay? You know, you cannot charge, um, as we would say in the Australian military, you can't you know, just throw smoke and go up the guts with a bayonet. Okay? You're going to, you are out... You are out, what's Hamilton say? We are outgunned, outmanned, outnumbered, outplanned. That's where we are. So we're going to have to be far more creative in how we resist a culture that will, that will tolerate nothing less than our complete surrender. Uh, for me, I think the Benedict option, faithful presence, the religious right, and uh, the exile option will not work. I'm, I think something like the Thessalonian strategy where we find creative ways to turn the world upside down will be the way that we go. And in the words of the great American philosopher, Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say about that. Thank you. Well, good evening. Clicker, sure. Do you need me to click it? No clicker for me, no technology. I'm withdrawing. Um, so uh, good evening. I've been uh, looking forward to this uh, for the past few weeks for a number of reasons. One is that I've been looking forward to hang out with Mike Bird. We know each other from Twitter and uh, a few other venues, but we've gotten to hang out a little bit this evening. And I now, um, after this evening, will have video evidence uh, for my grandchildren when I tell them that I'm friends with Mike Bird. So I'm happy to be here with Mike. And then um, Rod Dreher's book, The Benedict Option, I think it's a very good book in, in many ways, and there's some um, things that I really like about it. got a chance to meet him uh, two or three years ago. He's a great guy. I think he's been a force for good in, um, in our nation, in our cultural context. He's an unashamedly Christian voice in our secular age, and we do live in a secular age. We are undergoing in our nation and in the West, more broadly speaking, a radical process of desacralization that uh, the great theologian um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer called a world come of age in which people have learned to manage life without reference to God. It's an era that the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor calls our secular age, one in which he says belief in God has become unimaginable, implausible, and even unimaginable in which uh, Westerners, even those of us who call ourselves believers, live within the imminent frame. What he means by that is that we uh, think that we can answer all questions um, um, from within this world without reference to anyone or anything outside of this world. Um, It's a world that Philip Reif, one of my favorite commentators, the great uh, Jewish-American sociologist, uh, uh, an era that he calls the Third World Era, He said the first world era was one characterized by polytheism and the second by monotheism. But now in the West, we have a third world era in which the cultural elite, which he calls the officer class, have embarked on an unprecedented experiment to desacralize the social, cultural, and political order. And so in his book, in a trilogy that he published um, right around the time that he died in 2006, 2007, um, the first volume of that series, uh, uh, there's a book entitled um, My Life Among the Death Works. So in this book, he says, historically, all civilizations everywhere have understood that sacred order shapes social order and that it does so by means of cultural institutions and cultural products, cultural works. 
And so another way of putting that is that religion shapes society. That's what he really means. And that religion does so by shaping cultural institutions, which in turn shape people, and by um, influencing and motivating people to make cultural products. And those products then, in turn, shape the social environment and, and shape people. And so in the, in the United States, Christianity has been that sacred order. But it says now the officer class, a group of culturally, power, culturally powerful men and women, over uh, the previous uh, five or six decades especially, have decided to change all of that and embarked on a project in which they are attempting to rip sacred order out from underneath social order, leaving social order to float on its own. Now, we know that that's not true. There's always a sacred order operative. There's always, as what Mike was talking about, there's always a religion or an ideology that's operative. And it's what's so dangerous about what you were talking about, civic totalism, uh, I'll just talk about secular progressivism. That secular progressivism in the States is embarked on a project to kick uh, Bible-believing Christianity out of the public square. What's so dangerous about it is while it's kicking our God out the front door, it's dog-whistling you know, its own religion in through the back, uh, not calling it a religion. Um, but there's always a religion or an ideology. Ideologies are religious. They're um, thought frameworks built around idols. But there's a, so there's always a sacred order operative. But nonetheless, with Christianity removed, sort of removed, um, Reef says that what we have now is these cultural institutions and cultural products that were shaped in large part by Christianity and, and that were life-giving for society, that uh, shaped us uh, well rather than badly, that these cultural institutions and cultural products have become death works now, bringing death and decay, misshaping instead of rightly shaping. And so it's this sort of a situation, this sort of a backdrop upon which Rod uh, Dreher writes the Benedict Option. And what he says in the book, I'm going to read some excerpts from the book. Um, what he says is, listen, um, things are not going well for us, and uh, we need to stop using the same strategy that we've been using. Look at all the cultural activism you've done. Look at all the political activism. Where has it gotten you? Hasn't gotten you very far. So we need to take a step or two in a monastic direction in every sphere of culture. Not withdrawal completely. He says that in several different sentences in the book. But, um, but you know, really step, step back and let's try something different. We need to build a strong, he doesn't use these exact words, but a strong ecclesial counterculture. We have got to strengthen our own core muscles if we're ever going to be able to venture out again into the, uh, into the public square, if we could put it that way. So he says, in order to do that, we need to cast our eyes backward. If we want to cast our eyes forward, first we have to cast our eyes backward to Benedict of Nursia. Um, you know him from the Benedictine communities. He didn't know about the Benedictine communities. He didn't call them that. <laughs> um, but uh, So Benedict of Nursia retreated to the forest, as the story goes, uh, while Rome was, was falling. And he founded communities that were ordered communities, ordered around Christian habits and Christian practices that would shape a person and strengthen a person to be the type of person who can give witness in public. Strong Christian witness. And um, so at the, in the beginning of the book, Rod, you know, goes, goes, uh, talks a little bit about Benedict of Nursia, talks about some of, the, some of the habits practiced in the Benedictine communities. And then what he does next is he goes through seven, seven chapters in a row that address seven different sectors of society, 
or dimensions of culture and shows how it is that we ought to take a few steps in a, mon- in a, uh, a monastic direction. Let me give you some examples. I'm still in the descriptive part of my talk before we, we engage in um, critique. So politics is the first uh, sphere of culture that he treats. And in politics, what he recommends is an anti-political politics. He says, listen, take a look at the wasteland around you. doesn't use this exact terminology. Post-religious left, post-religious right. Boy, did we see that in this election. Um, and and there's, so there's been a seismic cultural shift. And the seismic cultural shift is that Christians have decisively lost the culture war. It is over. Second, he said, that we have lost uh, politically. That the religious right is not a moral majority. He didn't use these exact words, but it's, a, it's a certainly a minority. <laughs> um, and so he said, listen, why, why don't we do this? Let's significantly reduce, Mike, Mike addressed this one really well, significantly reduce our political involvement. Let's have less involvement at the federal and the state levels and more involvement at the local level. And then less politics in general and more community in general, church and community. Let's do those sorts of things. We need to do those things, he says. Um, let, me, let me read you just an example of um, one of his concluding paragraphs. I'm going to do this for two or three of the different spheres so you can hear his own voice. Here's how to get started with the anti-political politics of the Benedict Option. Secede culturally from the mainstream, turn off the television, put the smartphones away, read books, play games, make music, feast with your neighbors. It's not enough to avoid what is bad, you must also embrace what is good. Start a church or a group within your church. Open a classical Christian school or join in strength in one that exists. Plant a garden, participate in a local farmer's market, teach kids how to play music, start a band. Join the volunteer fire department. Okay, so it gives you a little bit of a picture of what he's talking about. And then let me read uh, from his section on education. He says he's encouraging Christians to not just sort of mindlessly send, yourselves, send your kids off to be educated by somebody who believes who knows what, but to be very intentional in your education to your children. It says this, The kind of schooling that will build a more resilient, mature faith in young Christians is one that imbues them with a sense of order, meaning, and continuity. It's one that integrates knowledge into a harmonious vision of of the whole, one that unites all all things that are, were, and ever will be in God. And then he gives five or six recommendations of how to do that. Um, They're not like strict black and white recommendations, but it's a panoply of things that you can do. you know, with your children as you, as you raise your children. Then with technology, that'll be the last excerpt that I'll read. He's talking about taking a, a, a step or two or three or four in a monastic direction in relation to emerging technologies. He says, online technology in its various forms is a phenomenon that by its very nature fragments and scatters our attention like nothing else. I think he's right. Radically compromising our ability to make sense of the world, phys- physiologically rewiring our brains and rendering us increasingly helpless against our own impulses. We think that our many technologies give us more control over our destinies. In fact, they have come to control us. And this opens the door to the more fundamental point about technology. It is an ideology that conditions how we humans understand reality. And so this gives you a little bit of a taste of what he's saying. He's saying, he doesn't ever say withdraw entirely. But he does say we need to do a lot of withdrawing. We need to not put our eggs in the basket of cultural and political activism. We need to build our local churches and build our Christian communities. So in response, let me tell you what I'm grateful about with this book and with Rod. 
Um, and then I'll tell you some things that I would do differently, that I would say differently. I'm grateful that he has a keen eye to discern sin and idolatry and the twisting and corrupting effects of sin and idolatry on uh, different spheres of culture. The Bible uses bi-directional language about the human life all the time, path of wisdom, path of folly. People are covenant keepers or covenant breakers. There's all kinds of bi-directional language. And it treats the heart as the central organizer of a, of a person's life. And so if the heart is pointed toward God, toward true north good, but if it's pointed toward any other false god or idol, then you have misdirection. And so at the social level, if you, if you have a bunch of idolaters, you're certainly going to have manifestations of that idolatry in cultural institutions. And I think Rod has got a keen eye to discern that. He's got pastoral concern. He writes, wanting to nourish and strengthen the church. And in a day where people write to slash and with verbal violence to attack the people that they're against, I think it's a very big positive that he doesn't write in that manner. I think he is absolutely right that we have got to put an enormous amount of energy into building a strong ecclesial counterculture. We have a sloppy flabby, weak ecclesial counterculture as a general rule. The exceptions to that. But we've got to do that. Absolutely. And then finally, I'd say I'm grateful that he was able to start a national conversation. Many of the rest of us have been trying to start a conversation, but not on the level Rod has. It's the most important religious book of the past few years, maybe the last decades. So we're grateful that he started the conversation. So I'm grateful for Rod, very grateful for the book. You ought to buy it and you ought to read it. I would do some things differently. I would emphasize some things. Maybe that's the best way to put it. Emphasize uh, some things in a different way than, than Rod does. And in order to articulate that, I want to draw upon a, um, an old guy. Uh, the old folks are often very helpful. And so we're going to go back to Father Abraham, Abraham Kuyper. And, uh, and we're going to draw upon... Well, I want to draw upon Abraham Kuyper's theological framework to help us address the problems that Rod is addressing. And there will be a significant amount of resonance with what Rod has to say, but there's going to be some difference too. So in order to do that, you know, and I've learned, uh, Mike and I both learned, that if you're going to respond to Rod Dreher's book, you've got to come up with an alternative or an option or a strategy of your own. And so I offer, you know, the, the uh, Abrahamic alternative. So I think in a, in a nutshell, to show you where I'm headed, Abraham Kuyper, uh, I would like to think that I could represent him well, would say something like this, to the resilient ecclesial counterculture, absolutely. To the step or two in the monastic direction, no. Let's continue to work for the common good. Let's do it well instead of badly. Let's learn from our failures in the past. And here's how I would, where I would build on, and I would say this. What Rod is saying, he's saying, listen, you've spent so much energy on cultural and political activism, often of a bad variety, and look what you've gotten for it, nothing. You've sold your birthright for a mess of pottage. So take that energy and put it into building a, a resilient ecclesial counterculture. What I want to say is it doesn't have to be an either-or, that there is a vast reservoir of energy that Christians have expended toward frivolous activities, slovenly intellectual habits. Take that energy and put it toward both a strong ecclesial counterculture, and working for the common good through cultural institutions, culture-making, and cultural engagement. So I'm going to draw upon two sort of um, heuristic frameworks that Abraham Kuyper gives us. The first is his teaching that creation has a normative order. 
So he, he taught it uh, somewhat like this. The Bible teaches us that God created different kinds of animals, right? Different kinds of vegetation, if you will. Even different kinds of people. I'm, I'm, I've got slippage in my terms here, but there were different kinds of people, men and women. Similarly, he said, if you look at the patterns that are revealed in the Bible, and the patterns that are revealed in history, you'll see that God also created different kinds of culture. He called them spheres. He used a spatial analogy. And he said, listen, God created human beings to be fruitful and multiply and eventually build society, and societies make culture. He wanted us to be culture makers. And we make different types of culture, art and science and politics and education and family and church and sports and competition. I mean, all of these different spheres. And each sphere, he said, if you'll, you'll notice, has its own center and its own circumference. So it's got its own reason for being, but also limits to its jurisdiction. And so each sphere should mind its business, in today's terms, swim in its own lane, and, and, and respect its own jurisdiction. Um, and so, so basically what the, what the Lord has given us, if we're reading history right and, and trying to pair it with what we see in Scripture, what he's given us is a system of checks and balances. Not at the political level by dispersing governmental authority, but at the ontological level by dispersing cultural authority. So Christ is king, and he rules directly over each of the spheres, giving it a reason for its existence, norming it, and giving it a limit to its jurisdiction. And so his vision was that Christians would gather to worship on Sunday mornings and have their core muscles built up, strong ecclesial counterculture, and not just Sunday mornings, but other sort of third spaces, but that we'd be sent out into the world on, on Monday to go into these various sectors of society or spheres of culture and to shape them toward Christ. Well, now that's a big phrase. What in the world could that possibly mean, to shape something toward Christ? Well, we don't have a lot of time right now, but let me say, I think there are three basic questions that we can ask. I give these when I teach in churches, three questions we can ask whenever we engage in a cultural activity, whenever we sit down to reflect upon something in a sphere of culture. The first question is, what is God's creational design for this sphere of culture, for this cultural activity? What purpose does it serve in God's good kingdom? So let's take government and politics. Uh, the purpose of government, I think, is to achieve justice for the various individuals and communities under its purview. That's its purpose. It also has limits to its jurisdiction. It's not supposed to appoint pastors. It's not supposed to control the arts or any other sector or sphere, as I see it. So, so what is God's creational design? Number two, how has it been corrupted and misdirected by sin and idolatry? That's an easy question to ask, but often a pretty difficult one to answer if you want to answer it well. And then thirdly, um, in light of its corruption and misdirection, how can we redirect it toward God's creational design uh, as it's revealed in Scripture and, and even more fully in, in uh, Christ's uh, life and teaching? And, uh, and so in, in this vision, in Kuiper's vision, um, the gathering of the church and the strong, um, resilient ecclesial counterculture is for the purpose of sending us back out into the world to work for the common good. Now, that looks different in a democratic republic than it looked like in the Bible times in the Roman Empire. And it looks even different than it did when the Jews were a diaspora, exiled. And even different, uh, slightly different than when the Jews were a, um, a monarchy. And even slightly different when they were a tribal confederacy. 
But the main principles are the same, that we're to work for the common good, as I see it. So that's the first uh, heuristic framework, creation's normative order. The second is the church's division of cultural labor. And that is, I want to refer again to what I mentioned a moment ago, the church is an institution and the church is an organism. So Kuiper took a look at the biblical teaching and said, listen, although the Bible doesn't use these terms, we can see that the church exists as an institution, the work of human hands. It meets and sings music written by humans in a, in a building constructed by humans and, and so forth. And so that's the church as an institution, and it gathers on Sunday mornings. Um, but the church is also an organism. And the church as an organism exists before the institution and will also exist long after it. And that's just the fact that we as believers are connected to one another in Christ, uh, connected to each other and connected to him at the head. And because of that, when the church as an institution disperses on Sunday mornings, we remain the church when we go out into the world to give witness. So let's talk about these two for a moment. Church as an institution. There's not an exact analogy here, so don't hear me giving an exact analogy. But the church as an institution, in large part, is Kuiper's attempt to draw upon what he had learned from the Anabaptists and what Rod Dreher has learned from the monastics, which is to say we need to have a strong ecclesial counterculture. When we gather on Sunday mornings, we gather around word and table to declare that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. Jesus is Lord and the President of the United States is not. Jesus is Lord and Congress is not. Jesus is Lord and you name it, whatever idol or potential idol is not. And the power of the church, the church has its own power. Every sphere of culture has its own power. And the power of the church is the proclamation of the gospel. And when the gospel is proclaimed in its fullness and its power, it calls into question the cultus publicus of any nation and of any people. And that's the role of the church as an institution. But the church is also an organism. In other words, we are sent out then as ambassadors of the king into various stations of life. And whatever station of life the Lord's given us, whatever workplace, whatever, whatever hobbies, whatever connections we have, that we're to leverage those for the common good, allowing our Christianity to motivate us allowing our Christian worldview to frame the way we approach, approach those endeavors because we love God and want to be a witness to him and because we love our neighbors. And so in the end, if I were to take Kuiper's work and apply it, it, would be, it, I would say something like this, and you see a lot of resonance with what Rod is saying, but you're going to see some difference too. Okay, so we are undergoing a process of desacralization. Radical process of desacralization. I think the sexual, sexual revolution is a place where we see it put in, in hyperspeed. Um, and like Rod says, we can embrace this moment. We don't need to resent it. We don't need to slouch into a full withdrawal. We don't need to charge into an angry activism. We need to embrace the moment. It's the moment the Lord has given us. In fact, Richard John Newhouse always said, and I love this, he said, one day when I meet, this is a paraphrase, when I meet the Lord one day, I will meet him first and foremost as a Christian, but I will also meet him as an American. You'll meet him as an Australian. But the point of that is this. You know, I'll meet the Lord first and foremost as a Christian, but I will also meet him as an American. Being an American is not the most important part of my identity, but is a necessary and inescapable part of my identity. He has given to me and you this context. 
in which to give witness, faithful witness, even when the going is tough and we can embrace the moment. In John 20, 21, John's version of the Great Commission, when Jesus says to the disciples, as the Father sent me, so I sent you, do you know what he did when he said that? He showed them the holes in his hands and his side. Implying to them, I think, that just as I have suffered, so will you. This is something you can embrace. And Christianity has often been at its best when we are a minority. We don't pray to be a minority. But when we find ourselves in a minority, that's often when we're at our best. That's when we can be the most prophetic. We can speak the truth in a way that contrasts in a significant way with the world around us. It's a time when we can be sacrificial. I mean, if our Lord could reign from a tree, if the cosmic king of the universe could reign nailed to a tree, then we can minister from our knees, can't we? From a position of social, cultural, and political weakness. Nothing compared to what he ministered from. And if he ministered as the cosmic king of the universe with humility, then we can minister with a humble confidence. Confident because he will return to set the world aright and institute a a one-world government with a one-party system where justice will roll down like the waters. But it will be a humble confidence because it will not be we who institute that kingdom. It will be he who does so. I think I've got two or three minutes left. Am I going to be tackled by the ESPN linebacker if I take two more minutes? So what does that look like? I'm going to gesture in the direction of what it looks like um, because I've not managed my time well. To be a public witness, to be engaged in the public square, to not withdraw in the spheres of culture, but to, to give equal energy to both. What does it look like? So in addition to the ecclesial counterculture, which which Rod has handled extraordinarily well, I would just add um, that we want to work for the common good through cultural means. What does that look like? I think we need to figure out a way in a desacralized public square, figure out appropriate and compelling ways to recenter God. He has been decentered, and we need to figure out how to recenter him. One way of doing that is by recognizing that the Bible's master narrative is in fact that, the master narrative. That every other narrative, the narrative of CNN, MSNBC, and Fox News, are bit players in the grand sweep of that narrative. And so we have got to find ways of framing cultural realities and ideas in light of the biblical revelation. Not having those things framed by us, for us, by secular outlets or secular thinkers or institutions. We need to be skilled excavators of idols. We need to be able to look at ideologies and trace them back to their roots. And at the roots, you'll find an idol, a false god. And we need to expose the false god for what it is. We need to do it on the left and the right in the political realm. We need to do it wherever it, wherever it can be found in any, any realm of culture. We need to decenter the self. That's number two. You can't recenter God if you continue to stand in the center yourself. And so. To decenter the self, how do we do it? One way we do it is by seeking the good of the city, working for the common good, culture work, not withdrawing. Um, working for the common good instead of just the good of our tribe. 
No, Rob, Rod doesn't say, I'm not critiquing Rod right here. I'm just saying, not just for the good of our own tribe. So it's selfless. We can do it by being civil. By not getting onto Twitter and striking back at people every time they say something ugly about us. Some people do that on, on Twitter. I think uh, Mike you know, mentioned that sort of thing. Being civil. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's an awful thing when we are supposed to be representing a gracious Lord, but we speak in ungracious ways. I've done it so many times myself. I'm not pointing a finger. It's something we've got to work on. Third, reframe issues. We've got to learn how to reframe contested issues in light of the gospel. Think for ourselves instead of having our, our thinking shaped for us by secular outlets and secular power influencers. And then finally, we need to revitalize culture. And when we revitalize culture, I think we want to play the long game and take the broad view. By playing the long game, I want to say we need to be very careful not to put all of our eggs in the basket of short-term political activism. When you do that, when you absolutely have to win the next election, when you have to get the next judge, when you have to win the next ballot referendum, you're going to be very tempted to sacrifice your long-term witness on the altar of short-term political activism. So we need to ask 30 years out, 40 years out, if the Lord gives us, I probably won't be around 40 years from now, maybe, 30, 40 years out, we need to have a witness that endures for that length of time. So what do I do now to be able to have that kind of witness? Christian community needs to think about that together. So play the long game and then take the broad view. So to take the broad view is, uh, you know, I think people focus on politics too much. Now that's my focus. But politics is one sphere of culture. What about art? What about the sciences? Scholarship and education, sports and competition, fashion industry, Hollywood, public universities. We want to encourage our young people, I think, to enter into these spheres of culture and to pray for God to give them wisdom and discernment, how they can be witnesses and maybe even positive influences in those, those spheres and those, those realms. And so why don't we just, you know, pray together over the next decades that the Lord somehow will use our witness, that even if we're decentered socially, culturally, and politically, that we can give a witness that pleases God, and maybe even if he grants us this powerful witness, even from a position of public weakness. So that's all I've got. I'm going to land the plane. And I don't have a snappy quote like Dr. Bird did. So I'm going to land the plane. I'm going to drop the mic and, uh, and walk off stage and let Dr. Keithley tell us what we're going to do next. Thank you guys for hanging with us. We are now entering the Q&A session, if you didn't already know. Um, so we have a few um, questions we've prepared. Um, so I'll just get right to it. Dr. Ashford, you mentioned Philip. Reef and Charles Taylor, why do you think uh, the work of these two men is especially helpful for evangelicals who wish to bring the gospel in, into an interface with Western culture? Yeah, so, you know, good question. I think um, one, of the things, one of the things that um, the church has begun to do fairly well, the evangelical church in the States in the past 20 or 30 years, is to recover a more rigorous exegesis of Scripture. Not all churches, not all pastors, but we've b- begun to exegete scripture better. Um, One thing we haven't done quite as well is to exegete culture, to um, give a deep level kind of analysis of our cultural context 
and ask, how, how do we bring the gospel into an interface with our cultural context? So I think Charles Taylor and Philip Reef are two of the more perceptive cultural critics that I've read. Um, if I were to describe it this way, now they're, it's tough to read these guys. I mean, I recommend Excedrin and maybe anything else you can find. Um, but uh, Reef, what he's really good at is showing the historical progression of desacralization and then illustrating it with different cultural pro- uh, products, works of art, pieces of literature, Supreme Court decisions, you know, these sorts of things. Charles Taylor does that also. I don't think he does it as well as Reef, but what Taylor does better is, t- in, is he describes the psyche or the mindset of the individual who lives in a secular age. And uh, so that you can sort of get into the mind and, 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 and realize how we've been affected by this uh, process of secularization. That's great. Um, Dr. Bird, given that you're from Australia, do you have any general um, observations of major differences between America and Australia as well as similarities in the context of what we've been talking about? Um, yeah, okay. Well, um, Australia is, is different. We don't have the same sort of religious heritage. I mean, so we, we're, we're, we're a founder as a nation of convicts. So, you know, the, uh, the, religi- the religious threshold we started off was pretty low. The people sent to our country weren't known for their piety right. and their works of charity. So, uh, I mean, th- th- this, this is a good way of explaining Christianity Australia. This, I've, heard, I've heard a historian describe this. Okay, imagine there's two drunks sitting in a bar and they're, ha- they're having an argument about which one is the least religious. Okay, which one is the least religious? And one drunk says to the other drunk, says, I bet you $5 you can't say the first words of the Lord's Prayer. And the second drunk says, I'll take that bet. He says, okay, then tell me, what are the first words of the Lord's Prayer? And the second drunk says, do others before they do you. (laughs) And the first drunk goes, oh, damn, and he hands over the $5. (laughs) In Australia, historically, people have not minded other people being Christian as long as they don't have to do it themselves. So so in the past they've said, it is kind of good to have these people around because they're they're generally nice and they they run schools and charities and hospitals, Uh, but that's now changing. That's now changing. Um, you know, Christians were good at least to have for their ethics, but now Christian ethics is what is exact, precisely despised. Um, and it's, I mean, re- usually related to things like sex, sexual ethics, euthanasia. Um, you know, we've got some, we've got some other debates uh, going on in our country related to refugees as well. So th- that's how it's been. And so, and our culture is far more militantly secular. And like you know, in that TV show, you have the voice in America. You know, you could have uh, one of those episodes where they focus just singing on gospel. But in Australia, that same program would never do it. And in fact, contestants have to sign part of their contract that they won't mention anything about religion when they're interviewed by their hosts and talk about how they sang at church or or anything like that. So we have a culture that is that has less of a Christian heritage and is. Far, a lot further down the secular track 
And I have, uh, I know, one chap, he says, he, he says, looking at Australia often looks like where America could be in 20 years. On the other side, we still have a fair bit of cooperation between church and state. Um, the federal government sponsors chaplains in a lot of high schools, and most of them are you know, evangelical, so they're still funding for things like that, although that program, as you can imagine, has been attacked uh, quite a lot. But at the moment, it's got a quite wide bipartisan uh, support. So there's, there's elements like that. Uh, I think Australia is just further along the, the, the secularism and at the moment the type of secularism we're facing is becoming quite uh, vitriolic and hostile. And I mean, like I said, there was a church just down the road where people are graffitiing in, you know, crucify Christians and chanting that. Yeah. Um, Dr. Ashford, so getting on a grassroots level, we can... You tell us to redirect um, a sphere of culture back to its original design. And I think about art and science and education and politics and all these massive spheres. And then we think about our daily life and how in the world am I supposed to do this, you know, influence all these major hubs of, of what our culture looks like in my daily life. So can you maybe walk us through an average day in the life of a person in America and what would it look like for that person to engage well in these mm -hmm. various spheres? Yeah, so I'd say, you know, the, the, the first thing you want to do is just to start with the sort of ordinary everyday activities that you've got. So let's just pick Facebook interactions. Uh -huh. Whenever I get on Facebook, especially during political season, I need three Prozac and five Excedrin. It's just an unmitigated disaster the way people interact with each other. So just take things like Facebook interactions, Twitter interactions, uh, social media, and ju just ask, how could this be used well? How could it be done well? How has it been corrupted and misdirected by sin and idolatry, and how can I redirect it toward God? And so practically speaking, what I've tried to do, I haven't done it well, is uh, I've limited how much social media that I do. I'm not on Twitter nearly as much as I was or, or Facebook, but when I interact, I do it on purpose. So I've got lots of scoffers and haters on my Facebook author page, thousands of them swarms of them, but I go in and interact selectively with some of them who are the ugliest on purpose. Um, a lot of people say never do that. I do it on purpose, and I do it as much for their sake, not only just for their sake, but for the other people who are watching. Here's how you engage somebody, a secular who's furious at you, a, uh, an ethno-nationalist who's furious at you. That's mm -hmm. who I have after me the most right now is uh, those, those folks. Um, so take our, our, our everyday activities and shape those towards Christ. That we can handle. That we can do. Then if we want to up at a level, we could say, listen, what are, what's a sphere of culture that I could or should be involved in because of who I am and the, the giftings that I've got? How could I get involved? And uh, you're going to need a community around you to do that well. So find a community of Christian artists or Christian businessmen or Christian homeschool moms or whatever it is that you're wanting to enter into and do well. And let the Christian community help you and shape you and find some, some nourishment there. That's something I think uh -huh. that uh, Rod would agree with. That's great. Thank you. Dr. Bird, um, you spoke in your Christianity Today article. Oh, and I meant to say, you can find both of these, um, not their lectures verbatim, but the general position they're coming from, they've written in, yours is on your website, BruceAshford.net. Yes. I've, I've changed it. This talk was changed about 
Okay. But still, the, the gist of it. The gist of it's there. So yep. there's an article called, it's called the Abrahamic Alternative, right? Probably, probably yeah. yeah. So you can just search his website for it. If you want to go back and you, and you want to remember, okay, what was the gist of that? Um, you can look at that. And then Christianity Today produced an article for you, and it's called the Thessalonian Strategy, correct? Um, or I think the title is actually called Turning the World Upside Down, the Thessalonian Strategy. Yep. So if you want to look for his article on this, you can. Um, so in reference to that Christianity Today article... Um, about waging war, quote, armed with the weapons of peace and pluralism, unquote. What is your vision for a peaceful and pluralistic society in a historically secular nation like Australia, or what would this look like in comparison to Dreer's vision? Okay, well, I, I don't know if I can speak for Rod. I, don't, I, don't, I think Rod's view is very much premised on American society where there is a degree of Christian Christianity, uh, whereas in Australia, only maybe 2% of people would be involved in a church. So you're dealing with, with small, so I, I don't think it, it maps over. Uh, when I say we, we, we need to work with the tools or the weapons of peace and pluralism, I think it means this, you know, we're not aiming for a theocracy. You know, because, you know, um, I, mean, I don't think Christendom was necessarily all that bad. It was certainly better than what preceded it, what was around it, and what will maybe come after it. Uh, but it certainly was not perfect, and constant, uh, constant, the Constantinian marriage with the church was corrupting. Um, but what, so we don't want a theocracy, we don't want a Constantinian settlement, but what we need to do is be able to create a society where people of all faith and none can live together. They can pursue their own happiness, they are free to believe, they are free to worship, they're free to exercise in the, their faith in the public square without fear of reprisal. And one thing I've learned is this, political progressives are not pluralists. No. They believe in ethnic diversity, they believe in sexual diversity, but they do not believe in ideological diversity. And I would go so far as to say that they're very happy to have people with brown and dark skin in the photo as long as they don't have to talk to them. Uh, because in, in, let me back this up. In Australia, when we've had this, we've had this uh, postal survey about same-sex marriage, where there was like you know, a voluntary postal vote whether you believe on same-sex marriage. That the, the part of the country that voted no was Western Sydney which is filled largely with immigrant communities. And it was the Asian and Middle Eastern immigrants, so Chinese and Muslims largely, who voted overwhelmingly no when it came to, same, to legalizing same-sex marriage. This has caused an existential crisis within the progressive side because they've always said, we believe in tolerance and pluralism and diversity, but they're finding out the people who don't share those values are the immigrant communities they thought they were the champions of. But it turns out they're not. I think the average Muslim uh, or the average um, you know, um, uh, you know, Chinese, could be a Confucius or whatever, probably has more in common with me, a Christian, than they have with these you know, secular elites. And I think this is very disturbing. And what I believe is going to happen in Australia is that the progressive elites are going to discover xenophobia. They're going to discover their own, their own inner Islamophobe. And it's going to you know, metamorphosize like a butterfly. And you already see proof of that. During this recent um, campaign we had, there was lots of bad videos. And there's one video of this one kid 
abusing this South Asian couple, couple from India, saying, how dare you come to this country and vote no? How dare you come to this country and vote no against same-sex marriage? And I feel like saying, where's your tolerance now? Where's your pluralism now? Where's your diversity now? I mean, you talk about pluralism and diversity as if you believe in it. They don't. They don't. And this is what I, this is what I would like to say to our, our cultural elites. L- let me explain how diversity works. Diversity means you get to be different without fear of reprisal. Okay? That's what diversity means. And you know, we, we, need to, we need to champion that. And I think one of, the th- one of the things churches actually generally do quite well is community. And even atheist philosophers like Alain Dupaton have noticed that Christians do community quite well. In Australia, one thing we're relatively good at is multicultural community, since we are a fairly multicultural society. Um, now, in America, that is a little bit different. Uh, but I think in some of the cities you can be a bit more multicultural. But the fact is here in the US your churches are still largely racially divided. Um, I think it's probably a lot better, for, I mean, as I read the situation, it's probably a lot better now than it was 30 years ago and hopefully this is something that will um, increase in the future. And I think something like the initiative you have here, Kingdom Diversity, is even though you've got two white guys speaking... <laughs> Uh, at the invitation of women, all you people on Twitter who are um, talking some smack about us, um, I think is such a good thing. And I think we need, like I said, we need to be empowering leaders, particularly those from marginalised backgrounds and experiences, because I think they are the ones who are going to lead us in the future. People who know what it's like to be marginalised will be leading the church when it's marginalised in the future. So please keep doing initiatives like these, keep empowering all of these leaders, um, you know, women, people, uh, men from every, you know, just everyone, the whole body of Christ, we need, we need to do that. I think that's going to be key to the future. I want to piggyback on that and, and um, in our American context, just talk about how significant it is if we as Bible-believing Christians, the word evangelical has been besmirched pretty badly yeah. in a number of different ways, but I'm still going to use it here. If we as evangelical Christians can be known as the people that help to bring our country back together to uh, work for the common good and not merely for the tribal good. Yeah. The re- reason that's important is you'll, you'll notice that there's a hard rump on the right and on the left who want swan-step uniformity. <clears throat> they don't want any sort of... Um, well, uh, you know, so on the right, you have the ethno-nationalists, some pretty prominent ones. I'll just use their own words. Richard Spencer, little Richard uh, Spencer, um, what he and many of his folks want, they want to get rid of the Declaration of Independence. They don't want an inclusive society. They don't want, they don't want one that's ethnically inclusive, for sure. And they want one that's more authoritarian than it is democratic. So they want control, and they do want to exclude. On the left... You have people like Martin Castro, who's the chairman of the um, Religious uh, Liberty Commission. They published the statement, Peaceful Coexistence. That dude would be scary cray-cray. That's right. He is cray-cray. And, uh, I mean, in this statement, he actually says, we know that these people think this, but he said it in an official document. He said, if we're going to exist peacefully, the religious people have got to go away, basically. 
He said religious believers are hiding their hatred, bigotry, and hypocrisy behind empty talk of religious liberty. And so that's the way they view us, and they want us to shut up. So they want to kick us out of the public square while whistling in their, their own God through the back. And so you've got these authoritarian impulses, and this is where we can say, listen, let's work for the common good. Let's put our Christianity to work for the common good rather than just merely our tribal faction. There was, uh, if I can um, add a couple of things to that. Um, yeah, I think you, you've, you've, you've got to remember, in my experience in Australia, um, from this debate we've recently had that went over a three-month period, what I could see from the political left, from the progressives, is they assume hatred is the only thing that motivates you, therefore I'm justified in super-hating you. So if I can stereotype that you're only motivated by hate, then it's okay for me to hate you back. So that, that's kind of like what we're facing. But there are some ways we can get around that. There was a, a friend of mine who put forward a great... Um, a great idea because there was a lot of like anti-Christian graffiti and there was also a lot of homophobic graffiti in places and guys came up with a good idea said what if Christians went out and they wiped off and they cleaned off the homophobic graffiti and then we got some people from the LGBT community would they be willing to wipe off the, the crucified Christians graffiti off churches and it's stuff like that where you th- th- those um, confidence building pluralistic building gestures where we can say, look, why we might disagree on certain things, we do not want homophobic violence again. We do not want to see these people call these horrible names. Uh, no, we don't want to see Christians crucified. No, we don't want to see you know, clergy beaten to death in the streets. I think we need to create opportunities where the, com- the communities can come together. And, but this is the important, not pretend we all believe the same thing. And not kind of you know, you know, you know, you know, sit around the campfire and sing Barbara Streisand songs. Just hold hands. People who need people are the luckiest people of all. Uh, no, not did, do that. Did that just happen? That just happened. Can we, we get that on video. We don't do the Barbara Streisand thing or just sing Kumbaya. We can affirm our differences, but we've got to learn to manage differences within diversity. That is what we need to be the champion because as one side says, no versity, no, no, no difference, my way or I destroy you. And there are people on the extreme left and right who want that. But this is what I mean by be champions of pluralism. Say, I can live at peace with my Samaritan neighbour, with my Roman neighbour, with you know, give no offence to Jews, Greeks, or the Church of God. Okay, we've got it. We we can find ways to live one another because we are commanded to love our neighbour, our Democrat neighbour, our transgender neighbour, um, even 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 our Baptist neighbour. Um, we we're commanded to to live at peace with them and to love them. And I think if we can demonstrate that we are the ones who would do that, not the civic totalists who want to treat any ideology or any person who dissents as an enemy of the state, we have got to be willing to do that and we've got to get active in doing it. Thank you. Um, so we both, or you both have been tossing the word pluralism around and there might be first year seminary students here still parsing out definitions. Um, on one hand, pluralism can sometimes mean um, everybody, um, all religious beliefs are okay. okay. They're all the same, yeah. right? And then there's political pluralism, and those are two different things. So can, you, can one of you maybe distinct, distinctify? Well, I, I, distinguish. I would say, I mean, th- theologically, 
Um, I mean, don't take this term the wrong way, but I would call myself a Christo-fascist. Um, I, want, I heard that term from a liberal theologian, by the way. I believe in the ultimacy and the complete supremacy and the worshipability of Jesus Christ. That is why I am still a Christian. I, be, I believe that Christ is the saviour of all people. And I believe in the exclusive claims of the all-inclusive saviour. But as my saviour commanded me, I need to live at peace with other people. So I don't, when I say pluralism, I don't mean there's many paths up the mountain or religions are the same. I'm Trinitarian, which means I can't be uh, a Muslim. You know, I'm not wearing the weird underwear, so I can't be a Mormon. Um, um, but you know, at the same time, I have to acknowledge that their people are different than me. And it basically means they have the right to live. When I buy pluralism, I mean a, a social pluralism, not a theological pluralism. Uh, I believe that there is diversity in the church. There was diversity in the church from the beginning. But you know, you've got to learn to live at peace with people who are different than you. So I'll just add one thing. That, that was uh, good stuff. The phrase principle pluralism is used in a number of different ways. Yeah. Okay, and so when you hear the phrase... It's used in some even incompatible ways. In the best sense of the word, a principled pluralist says this, we need to create a society where people are free to believe what they think is right and to organize their lives around what they believe yeah. is right, to build cultural institutions, Christian churches, Muslim mosques, Christian schools, Muslim schools, atheist institutions. We, there's got to be enough freedom. We don't want to coerce people in yeah. religion because that is... a, a upends the nature of the gospel. So you don't want to create a society where people are forced to pretend to be Christians when they're actually not. All kinds of ugly comes from that. Now, there are some limits to the exercise of religious freedom. Yes. Violent acts on other people, for example. You know, religious freedom ends there. Yeah. Um, but we want to create a society where people can be who they are, where they don't, aren't forced hypocritically to pretend like they're Christians in order to be a part of our society. Limits. It means I can't break into your crèche and baptize your babies while you're worshiping. Right. There's and you know, and most, most Americans <laughs> were fine with pluralism until the past 10 or, 10 or 20 years. Yeah. And you see lots of Baptists who are against religious liberty now. Yeah. Which you is know. sad because yeah. Baptists have, I mean, one of the strengths of the Baptist tradition, yep. um, something that we haven't done well as Anglicans, uh, one of the strengths of the Baptist tradition is they have been big on... Uh, uh, um, religious liberty and freedom of conscience. Uh, in Anglicanism, we've been a little bit different. We've tended to prefer burning people at the stake. Um, <laughs> but we don't do that anymore. <laughs> That's great. Okay, so you both take the stance that we should not isolate from culture but stay in it and engage in different ways. Um, let's just say we largely agree with you. That's, yep. that's a an overstatement maybe, but I'm just going to say we largely agree with you. Let's say that's true. If we do choose one of your options, what do you think is the biggest mistakes Christian makes, Christians make as they try to stay in culture and engage with it? The biggest mistake. That's a tough one. A mistake. So a, many a, mistakes. Trend, a, a mistake that you see trending lately. Okay, I could give you a few. Number one, and this is very easy, don't be a jerk. It's very simple. Don't be a jerk. Um, the second one is don't be. Secondly, I'd say don't be seduced by culture. 
Particularly, don't be, don't be seduced by the desire for acceptance and popularity. Um, if you want to be popular, my advice is give out free beer at a Tar Heels game. <laughs> You'll be very popular. People will like you. But you are not called to, pour, to pander at the pool of popularity. You're called to be faithful. So don't be a jerk and don't be seduced by the desire to be accepted and, and, and to be popular. I would say don't forget to take a missionary approach. Um, so Leslie Newbigin, the uh, great British missionary to India who returned to the UK and uh, for the last 20 or 30 years of his life, I think published 20 or 30 books, mm. try, uh, when, when he got back from India, uh, an Indonesian general at a conference had looked at him and said the real question uh, Mr. Newbegin, is whether or not the West can be converted. And so Newbegin said that question haunted him. And when he got back to the UK, he said he looked around and he realized that the, the British uh, Empire, if you will, dwindling, dwindling as it was, needed to be reconverted. And so his answer was that we need to take a missionary approach to our cultural context. I think in the States we have no idea how to do that. We are used to speaking commanding truths from the heights. We had cultural control and cultural power. Christianity is often not at its best when we have cultural control, cultural power. That's unfortunate. But now we have the opportunity to take a missionary approach, which is when you approach your cultural context humbly and with curiosity. When a missionary goes and moves into a people group, it learns that people's language, learns their way of thinking, mm -hmm. doesn't mock them on Twitter, doesn't insult them. Yeah. doesn't take all of the bad characteristics of a few bad people within a people group and then put them into an aggregate and apply that aggregate to every single person in the people group. This is what Americans do right now. This is the American way. We are unkind, uncharitable, ugly, mean, angry people, religious conservatives, Bible-believing Christians, evangelical Christians included. It's an ugly, nasty mess. So instead, we can, we, can, we, we can do it the way Jesus did it, as we can approach out of humility and to, to know our social and cultural context and to know how to bring the gospel into an interface uh, with that context. So we can be prophetic, we can be sacrificial, and we can be humbly confident. That's good. That kind of segues really well into um, another question. It's directed primarily at you, but feel free to chime in. So Ephesians 5.11 um, tells us to take no part in, in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. And you kind of pushed into that, saying that um, we need to create pathways to offer creative resistance yeah. in our culture. Um, but I would say we're not just called to expose or resist the darkness, but also share the light of Christ. So while we're trying to be creatively resistant, how can we also creatively share the gospel where we are, not just resist, but share. Um, and what does that look like in a secular age? How is evangelism going to look different in this age? Okay, yeah, I mean, yeah, creative resistance. I mean, I love that guy who made the videos of Planned Parenthood about, you know, selling baby parts. That was so embarrassing for the movement because, like I said, we lifted the lid and we saw, we saw, we saw, we saw what, you know, what they were up to, what they were doing, and they, they, were, and they were so angry that we found out about it. And I'll tell you one story. There was a guy who was coming to us, an American guy coming to Australia to, to talk about it. Um, politicians in our party got him arrested at the airport. And so he couldn't come to us. He, he, he was in the Australian airport. He, he was under arrest without the benefit of charge or trial because they did not want him coming to Australia 
and um, they found something in a book he'd written years ago that was objectionable and they used that as a basis to, imp to basically incarcerate him mm -hmm. and get him thrown back to America. So that's the lengths they will go to stop you. So we've definitely got to sh keep shining that light. I mean, your best, you know, your best weapon these days is, my friends, it's one of these. It's a smartphone. When you, when you see the... Uh, the progressives or whoever they are and people on, I guess, on the political or the ethno-nationalists doing their thing, that is the weapon you can use. Expose them for what they are and shine the light on them. So that's the first half of the question. The second half, um, I would say, is this. Is, is very soon you're going to start meeting people who do not know any Christians. Uh, maybe not in Wake Forest, uh, but if you leave here and you go, you go places like Portland, or other places, um, you know, you will you will soon come across people who grew, who grew up, who grew up not knowing any Christians. I mean, I was like that growing up in secular Australia. Everything I knew about Christianity, I learned from Ned Flanders. <laughs> that's that's that, that's where I learned everything I knew about Christianity, and I've learned Christians are a bit like Ned. Um, so you, you you and here's here's the other thing, and here's the thing to remember. You will be the only Christ figure many of them will ever see. And what they think of Jesus will be dependent entirely on their interactions with you. There is a, that's a great responsibility uh, in how you, you witness for Christ. Agree with that. I would add, you know, in every age, but especially in a secular age, I think there's the importance of words and deeds. So you have liberals and conservatives. Conservatives tend to stress words to the exclusion of deeds, or we can do that. Liberals tend to ex um, emphasize deeds to the exclusion of words, right? So social gospelers, Walter Rausch and Bush, and those back in the day, they did uh, what they considered to be gospel deeds, but didn't proclaim the gospel the way it ought to be proclaimed. We need to reject that option. But I think we need to reject the opposite option, which is what some conservatives promote, which is to elevate proclamation while demoting action. And I think that's bad. I mean, I think it's awful. Scripture never, ever bifurcates word and deed. And I think we ought not to either. I mean, which, which is more important for me? I get this question all the time. Which is more important for me when being a witness to my secular neighbor, speaking the gospel to him or refraining from having sex with his wife? I don't know. How, do you, how would you possibly pick? We don't pick between words and deeds. So if you use an analogy for just a moment, um, so I grew up as a, a separatist, a cultural separatist. I wasn't allowed to watch movies or television shows or listen to any kind of music except for patriotic songs, hymns, and classical music. Um, but one of the TV shows that I was allowed to watch was Little House on the Prairie. Awful, I know, awful childhood, but... Little House on the Prairie, they had covered wagons, all right? So if you've ever seen a covered wagon, the wheels are, you know, you've got a wooden hub, wooden spokes, and a wooden rim, right? <clears throat> so if we make an analogy between a covered wagon and the Christian mission, I would, I, with the wagon being the mission and the spokes and the hub being word and deed, I would say something like this, that the Christian proclamation of the gospel, speaking gospel words, the words of life, that's like the hub of the wheel. If that ever gets removed, the wheel collapses and the wagon gets no traction. The Christian mission gets no traction. You have to have gospel words. But I think gospel deeds are like the, uh, the spokes and the rim. And they're the things that give the words traction and credibility. 
And if you don't have the traction, if all you've got is hubs, you're not going to get much movement at all with a covered wagon trying to roll on its hubs. And so we've got to find ways, and this goes back to what we've been talking about the whole time, to not only proclaim the gospel and strengthen our ecclesial counterculture, but also to allow Christ the King to shape the way we act in public so that we act Christianly, so that our combined witness has a powerful effect so that the Christian mission can move forward. Um, To press further into that, do you think the starting place with a lost friend in a secular age is the same starting place as, let's say, a person was 20 years ago? So in... Um, let's say oh. our deeds are there yeah. and we're providing traction with deeds, but how is evangelism, the actual conversation with the lost person you, changing? You can't assume any knowledge of scripture, yeah. uh, almost zero Christian residue. When I lived in Russia and worked in a even yeah. more secular context, you can't do Bill Bright's four spiritual laws. Yeah. I mean, every time you say God, yeah. they load some wildly different conception into the word God. Every time you say this word sin, every time you every yeah. time you say any word, it's loaded with so much false freight yeah. that you don't get anywhere. They don't have the same category. You have to find a way to immerse them into the Bible's narrative so that they can understand your words. I think that's an important thing. And also that your words be accompanied by deeds and that you understand where they're coming from. That's the missionary approach, that you listen attentively uh, so that there can be an interface of, of the gospel and the person you're talking to. I can kind of give an example. I got a, um, an, um, a text message from my brother um, saying, um, thanks for the NIV book. You said, I said, what? He goes, thanks, thanks for the NIV book. I don't understand, Dean. You know, the NIV book, that Bible. Oh, you mean the NIV? Um, that, I thought that was a funny, uh, a funny experience. Uh, although I once preached in a church and afterwards a Japanese lady came up to me and said, uh, what is Jesus? <laughs> Man, you, so you, you, you can't start with John 3.16 when you're talking to someone like that. I mean, they're, they're just, you know, they're, they're coming, they might as well be from, you know, Mars. And you, you often, you have to, have, to have to start like that. I mean, the words God, Jesus, sin... Redemption, these things, then maybe we use the same words, but they will have different reference in mind. Good, yeah, so I'm assuming it would probably take a lot longer, that the relationship would probably need to be built up over time, Um, just for all those categories to sort of fall into place. So uh, for Dr. Ashford, um, do you think politics uh, is the most important dimension of culture for evangelicals to engage, or no? No. No. <laughs> so it is the most important one to me. I feel called to write in that arena, but no, politics is not, as I see it. So when Christians talk about their interface with culture, they usually mean, I think, from my experience, their political activism. So culture and politics are almost conflated. But politics is the art and science of persuading other people to your point of view on public issues. That's only, government and politics is only one sphere of culture. The arts, the sciences, politics, economics, sports and competition, scholarship and education, business and entrepreneurship, all of these I think are equally important, and they sort of hang together. And so if we can encourage our younger folks especially to enter into these spheres and to shape them toward Christ, to leverage their Christianity in those spheres, then I think the the cumulative effect of the combined witness could be pretty powerful.